Hey folks, welcome to another freshly minted episode of EMIGCast. I'm Nick Chapin, coming to you from Oregon Health and Sciences University in Portland, Oregon, and I'll be your host for today's show. I recently had a chance to sit down with one of our local ED physicians, Dr. Evelyn Kim, to chat about some of the pitfalls of how we make decisions in the emergency department and how metacognition can help to mitigate some of them. Yep, metacognition. That's the act of thinking about thinking, about thinking, about thinking, and so on. But I'll let Dr. Kim explain. Enjoy the show. So first off, thank you so much for being here. Um, So just basically, what is metacognition? What are we talking about here? So metacognition is essentially, at, at its most base form, the process of thinking about thinking or analyzing the way that we make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not even so much as going back and like doing a sentence diagram of the way you think about things, but it's taking into factors the ambient situation that puts your brain in a certain frame of mind, and then also trying to decide what patterns of thought that you're having that are leading you to a diagnosis, and then... For medicine, it, it is about what you bring to the table in terms of your base knowledge, um, but then a lot of the biases that you incorporate um, habitually mm-hmm. into your practice without even realizing it. So taking those pieces, trying to figure out how they influence the way you make a decision. And most of the people who, um, well, not most people that look into it, but I think the most obvious way that people will use it is to go and retrospect and analyze an M&M case mm-hmm. and try to figure out where they went wrong. But I think it's equally important to look at it in cases where people went right because it's helpful at any point in the game to kind of stop and think about, well, why am I even having this visceral reaction to this patient right now? Yeah. And then why am I thinking only about these five things? And why did when I walk into the room, did I instantly latch onto this one idea as to what could possibly be going on with the patient? Um, so the way, one of the things that I put into some of my presentations, I talk about it is I have this slide of a couple on the beach. So it's the the typical where you've got a couple and they're both thinking in their own worlds. And the woman looks at the man and says, what are you thinking about? Metacognition to me is the woman looks at the man and says, what are you thinking about what you're thinking about? (laughs) What do you, so what do you consider the scope of the problem to be? Like how, how much damage is being done through these cognitive errors? The biggest thing is that emergency medicine has this myth that the ideal clinician is somebody who walks into a room and immediately comes to the diagnosis by gut feeling or they just know what's going on. It's kind of like that mythology of the cowboy ER doctor or Mm -hmm. house, I think, is supposedly one of those doctors that walks in and just knows everything. Um, And it's truly a myth, and I think that it's being debunked as time goes on, and I can see how it came about because before we had uh, decision aids and clinical decision rules and before emergency medicine became more scientific, I think you did have to have some kind of a cowboy attitude towards how you approach things. Um, but now that emergency medicine becoming, has become its own specialty in its own right, uh, and there's a lot higher expectation of what we do, then I think we pride ourselves more on the thought process of how we're doing it. So the idea that you're going to go into a room and know immediately what is wrong with the patient and be able to diagnose it with very little information is going away. 
Um, and so in that sense, it's becoming less of a problem, but I still think that the situation of working in an emergency department forces you to rely more on gut feeling than in many other specialties. So in terms of the problem, it is very easy to feel the pressure of the environment and feel like, well, I don't really have time to think this through. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to use heuristics or I'm going to use rules of thumb to make my decisions and I'm going to immediately cone down this person's potential diagnoses to three because that's really all I have time for. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes that works and most of the time it actually works and the more experience you have, the more that tends to work, although sometimes that experience will uh, handcuff you. Um, and so I think that's where you have to really think about, am I being overly rushed in this environment and why did I come to these three diagnoses and was that legitimate or not? Um, and if I think if you don't step back and do that every time uh, you go into a room and make a diagnosis, then you're potentially pigeonholing the patient and doing them a disservice um, and missing diagnoses. So what are some of the more common errors that you see take place in the emergency department? Oh, there's some that I, I absolutely love. I think probably um, triage queuing is a big one. It, and that's the concept that the way a patient presents to the ER or the part of the ER that they come in seals their fate. So, for example, if somebody comes in as a trauma, all of a sudden everybody treats it as if they're potentially more ill, as, if, uh, as opposed to if somebody just drives in mm -hmm. with a friend then oftentimes they're left to wait in triage for mm -hmm. hours. Or same thing, if somebody comes in by ambulance, we tend to take that complaint a little bit more seriously mm -hmm. than if somebody is just brought in by their wife. And so that's a big one. Um, another one is premature closure. You hear about that one a lot where uh, people, and this is actually really prevalent in emergency medicine because for time expediency, we have to narrow down the potential diagnoses really quickly. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes you'll cone in on your top three causes of chest pain, and then you'll quickly go down to your top one cause of chest pain. The most common thing to do, for example, is to decide that somebody's chest pain is cardiac. Um, and so then you just start going down the cardiac pathway and you work them up for cardiac and decide, okay, is this going to be uh, an ACS or is it not an ACS? Mm -hmm. um, rather than going back and saying, well, could this be cardiac chest pain, or could it be an aortic section, or could it be a PE, or could it be esophageal spasm? Um, and narrowing down that too quickly will cause you to do premature closure where you are just deciding whether or not you're going to rule out this one potential diagnosis or not, and you've left all the other ones behind. So that's a really common one. Um, another one is availability bias, yeah. right? So availability bias is such a classic uh, EM thing to do, and it's basically the most recent diagnosis in your head or perhaps the most recent article that you read um, is in your forefront of your consciousness. And so the next patient you see, you're going to have to rule that out. And so if you were scarred by missing aortic dissection on your last shift, every person with chest pain that you see on your next shift is going to be yeah. rule out aortic dissection. Yeah. Or if you went to an M&M where somebody talked about a missed carotid dissection, you're going to think about that every time you see somebody with a neurologic symptom. Attribution bias is one where you blame the patient for why they're there. So the classic example of that would be uh, an IV drug user mm -hmm. and feeling like they deserve, and this is, this is not in uh, conscious, it's not a conscious bias, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully not. Yeah. For, most, for the most part. But it's that feeling that if somebody who's homeless and an IV drug user comes in with a certain problem, that it's their fault because they gave it to themselves. So it's actually okay 
if it's not perfect. It's okay if you don't drain their abscess perfectly, or it's okay if you think about draining the abscess, but you don't really want to because you don't have time and you're just going to hope that it's a phlegmon and give them antibiotics and tell them to come back tomorrow if it's not any better. Mm -hmm. That would be a situation where you probably didn't treat them as well as you could have because you have that gut feeling of, well, you did this to yourself, so you mm -hmm. kind of deserve it. Yeah. How much of a problem do you consider framing bias to be in the department? I think it's a huge problem, especially with the EMR, when you pull up a patient's chart and their problem list is right there in front of you, uh, and you look at all the notes in a very quick fashion, and they all have the same diagnosis, especially if it's one that um, a patient who's somewhat problematic, they get pigeonholed. So I, I think that's a framing bias is a big one. And that one actually also happens with even when a paramedics bring in a patient to the ED and you, you stand in the room and everybody gets report and the paramedic is rolling their eyes saying, mm -hmm. oh, this patient's really not that sick. So then everybody goes away from that encounter thinking, well, the paramedic didn't think the patient was that sick or the initial nurse that saw the patient didn't think that they were that sick. And that tends to go down the line. Um, and we do unconsciously adopt these prior attitudes that people have towards the patient. I think that's very true. Yeah. So in the midst of a busy shift on a practical level, how do you take that step back and try to cue yourself into a more analytical way of thinking? I think it's really hard and I think it's not our nature to do it at work because there's this constant flow and this constant pressure of patients coming in from triage and the nurse is asking you what you're going to do next and then the next patient that you have to attend to. So in the moment, I think it's very hard to do, but I think that sometimes you just have to stop when you're ordering your lab tests and rather than going through your automatic panel of what lab tests you're going to do, you have to really think about, okay, what lab tests are worthwhile for me? And what do I think the results of this lab test are going to be before I even order the test? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a little mental game that I play with myself whenever I see patients. It's easy to just click on CBC, comp, troponin, mm -hmm. and urine, and just do that for every single patient you see. But in reality, that's, that takes the thinking out of it. And to me, that makes emergency medicine less fun. Part of me likes the challenge of the diagnosis. And so whenever I see a patient, I click on their lab panels, but before I even hit the button, I think, well, I'm going to get a CBC. And the reason I'm going to get the CBC is because of this. And I actually think the result is going to be X. And I could be wrong, but it it takes me, it slows me down and mm -hmm. it makes me process why I'm doing that test. And that makes me think a little bit more about the patient as I'm ordering the test. And with Epic, I think it's just so easy to click on your panels or to have your preference lists um, and, and make it more automatic. And I think that the more you make it automatic, the more dangerous it gets in terms of missing or glossing over things. Uh, oftentimes when I feel like I have a gut sense of something, that's when I know that I have to step back and think about why I had that gut feeling. Um, and this whole idea that ER doctors or the good ER, ER doctors have a gut sense of what's going on, is it, it's a total myth. Because in reality, we all started out as med students and pre-med students, and we knew nothing. Mm -hmm. And essentially, I feel that what a gut feeling is, is that it's that uh, internalization of all those little things that you learned along the way. And then at some point, 
you give yourself credit and you think, oh, I was so smart. I had a gut sense that this guy had an aortic dissection. Right. When in reality, 10 years before that, you would have had no idea what was right. going on with the patient. Right. So whenever you get that gut feeling, realize that it's actually really not a gut feeling. And it's just an amalgamation of all the things that you learned over the years. Right. And that it very easily could be completely wrong. <laughs> and oftentimes it's right and it's good and you can give yourself a pat on the back. But uh, in reality, it very much could be wrong. So the closer you get to those gut feelings, I think the the easier it is to make mistakes. It's it what it's what makes us efficient, and it's often what makes us really good, and it certainly is what differentiates ourselves from everybody else. But I think we put a little bit too much pride into it as a specialty, mm -hmm. and so I think whenever you get those gut feelings, is when you really need to take a step back and say, okay, why did I have this gut feeling, and where could it be wrong? Yeah. And I think it's the cases where you walk into the room and within two minutes you say to yourself, I have no idea and there's no way I'm going to possibly come to a diagnosis on this patient. Yeah. And those are for us the most frustrating encounters yeah. is when you go and you go, you, you can throw your hands up in the air and say, I have no idea what I'm going to do with yeah. this patient. Those are the ones I think where you tend to make less mistakes because you start out with this completely clean slate and you have to systematically go through every potential thing that's wrong with them. And oftentimes there is nothing wrong with them, seriously, mm -hmm. at least. <laughs> but at least you went through the thought process. Whereas yeah. when you walk into that room and you just get that sense, oftentimes you're shortcutting. And the shortcutting is what makes you efficient, but the shortcutting is also what can make you have errors. And then that's the same thing as when you go into a room and you kind of have that negative visceral response. We all have biases against certain types of people or certain expressions on people's faces or things like that. And all these unconscious biases uh, will shortcut the way we come about diagnosis too. And so I think whenever you feel this sense of disgust or rage towards a patient, um, then you should step back and say, well, okay, what is it that's yeah. making me dislike this patient? Um, and make sure that you acknowledge what it is, and you can try to expunge yourself of that as much as possible. That would make you a better person in general. But we can't do it all the time. And so instead, use that analysis to figure out if you're giving the patient short shrift. So when you, when you initially take that step back, where do you kind of restart with more analytical thinking? Where do you start getting the ball rolling from that point on? Sometimes it actually happens when I'm still in the room. Um, and it's seeing a patient, it's such a dance to me of your reflection of what you're thinking onto them and vice versa. And so sometimes mm -hmm. if you go into a room and immediately start off and you can already sense that there's a little bit of a negative interaction, mm -hmm. uh, that will get the ball rolling in my head of why am, I, why am I feeling this way? Why am I thinking that? So being attuned to that feeling of where you stand with the patient will often start the process. But uh, I don't tend to put orders in in the computer in the patient's room because I feel like then I'm not paying attention to them and I also feel like I'm not really giving myself enough time to think yeah. about what I'm doing. So I try to sit down, I try to talk to the patient, take my history. I don't take a history at the same time and put it in to Epic. So I tend to just look at the patient, try to memorize what they're saying, um, and then I'll go out to my workstation. And then I'll put down a little bit in their chart, and then that helps me process it as I'm typing in or dictating what is going on. And then when I'm doing their orders, I'm thinking about all the potential things that could that could be going on with the patient. And again, doing my little game of 
I'm going to specifically order these tests and I'm going to think about every test that I order and I'm going yeah. to think about what I think the result is. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's my way of forcing myself to slow down without actually having my cup of tea and saying, yeah. oh, what do I think about this possibility and that possibility? Instead, I think I just slow my workflow down a little bit and mm -hmm. that's enough to help me go through all the potential yeah. diagnoses. So knowing what you know now, if you were to go back as a medical student, what would you do differently with regards to trying to combat cognitive errors in your practice? Oh, I would do a lot differently. <laughs> I think it's easier now, though, to be aware of these things because when I first started out, it was, it was about how efficient are you and how macho are you and how unafraid are you. There was um, this constant pressure to just go in there and dive into your shift and dispo as many patients as you, can, as you could and and order as few tests as you could and come to the diagnosis as quickly as you could. So there wasn't, for me especially, and, and I was just trying to keep up with everybody around me, uh, I don't think there was as much thought to why, why we were doing what we were doing. And I feel like in the span of my career over the past 15 years, emergency medicine has changed a lot. I, I call right now the golden age of emergency medicine because I feel like we are change, we've changed so much as a specialty uh, we have so many luminaries now that really have uh, codified the way we do things, that have made it a lot more scientific. I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, our miss rate was higher, and that was a little bit more acceptable because we had the ex exigencies of time, and we didn't have a lot of great testing. Mm -hmm. We didn't even have troponins when I was a resident. Yeah. That didn't exist. Um, so, and we had to get permission to get CT scans mm -hmm. to rule out PEs. And so it always made you take an extra step to do it. So oftentimes you would just decide that the patient didn't have a PE because mm -hmm. <laughs> you wouldn't want to have to fight with the radiologist. Sure, right. So you were forced to make these decisions and they were often bad decisions, but you kind of felt like, well, I ha this is my hand and I have to do it. Yeah. Whereas now you have these possibilities. I can order a, a CTPA whenever I want, and we did go through a period of time where we did that on everybody because we mm -hmm. didn't want to miss anything, and then we started realizing, well, this is actually probably not a good idea either yeah. because we're coming up with all these negative tests, spending this money and giving people radiation exposure that, doesn't, that don't need it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that um, it's, much, it's much easier now because we have decision aids to help us in terms of clinical decision rules um, that help us uh, become more, or help us be more scientific about the way we approach patients. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, that idea of, um, of knowing that both sides of that are important, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And I think, I think that's actually what, what I would have liked to have known when I was an intern in emergency medicine, was that equally important as being efficient and being tough and um, being able to deal with all the chaos is having that intellectual side to the, mm -hmm. to, the, to the job and knowing that I couldn't just make decisions based on gut. Yeah. And all the people that I, that I thought I admired who I thought were making decisions based on their gut feelings and could go in and just feel from the doorway what was going on in the patient's yeah. room. I remember those were the people that I looked up to and thought, wow, that was 
so amazing how that person could be like that. And I want to be that person, um, realizing that that's actually, that is a myth, Yeah. you know, it's yeah. that it's a total myth and that that person got there because they've been working for 10 or 15 years yeah. and they, they actually recognize the patterns. Um, and that even though that's really cool to watch as it's going on, it's not perfect. Yeah. And yeah. so that idealized notion that I was always aspiring to be, first of all, doesn't even exist. And second of all, that's actually really not the ideal, yeah. right? The ideal is somebody who uh, can go into a room and take action really quickly and have that backed up with the knowledge of a couple of years of experience or just have that backed up with some textbook or intellectual knowledge um, mixed with the second half of the person who can think through things, but think through them efficiently without getting bogged down and having to rule out every potential diagnosis yeah. and being trapped in, in the thought process, yeah. essentially. So you like using that more intuitive way of thinking as a tool, I mean, using that to get you somewhere, get you started, and then kind of going back and, and looking at it more deeply with more of an analytical kind of frame of mind. That exactly sums it up. It sums it up perfectly. And that's kind of the whole, um, goes back to the, dual process theory of cognition mm -hmm. that you hear about now so much. And I think uh, Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, really talks about this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that for emergency medicine physicians, it's you have to have the perfect blend of those two things. So system one thinking is that shoot from the hip, intuitive feeling, mm -hmm. fast processing um, type of thinking. That's the kind of thinking that can get you from work to home without having to think about every turn and every step. Yeah. And then system two is the more methodical, cogitative, let's sit down and analyze what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and you need to have both. And I think that many people think that most ER doctors are actually fully system one thinkers when yeah. they're at work. The ideal ER physician or emergency medicine physician is somebody who has that great blend of system one and system two. So mm -hmm. you initially come into a room and you your system one fires and you get that feeling of, is this a really sick patient or not? And what are my top five diagnoses for chest pain? And then step back and use your system two to parse all that apart and, and then add more things in later or um, that you didn't think about initially with mm -hmm. your first gut feeling. Well, thank you very much for coming in. I appreciate it. Oh, sure. That was super fun. So briefly, a few points Dr. Kim made that really resonated with me about how to break away from exclusively type 1 intuitive thinking and move into a more analytical or type 2 way of thinking are these. First off, I really enjoyed hearing about how she purposely divorces the act of seeing a patient from the act of starting her ordering and her workup whenever possible. To recap, she'll see a patient, come back to her workstation, and at least begin to start her dictation to solidify the story and allow herself the time to let some of the details sink in and then she'll start her ordering and further hone her differential. And once again, when she's ordering tests, she's thinking about each one and trying to guess the result so as to more consciously and analytically think about how it could be used. I know I've heard it time and time again, but know what you're ordering and know how the result affects your overall care of the patient. Number two, be aware of your reactions to patients. Use that as a trigger to think about how your interaction with them could be affecting the care you're providing. Are you dismissing complaints in one person that you wouldn't in another? And finally, we're obviously working hard as students to develop a catalog of patterns to help quickly identify potential diagnoses. But although they're often extremely helpful and necessary to become effective and efficient ED docs, they're not 100%. 
If you feel your gut move you in a certain direction, feel good that you're adding to your catalog, but make sure you take a step back and remember how you got there in the first place. Is that pattern you may have unknowingly used to get your diagnosis legitimate? What else could it be? Thanks again to Dr. Kim. Hope you enjoyed the show. Tune in next time. This podcast represents only the views of its producers and does not represent the views of OHSU or any affiliated institutions. And while we make every effort to broadcast correct information, we're still learning and we ask that our audiences keep in mind that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, who we'd like to thank for their continuing support. We do not accept money from any other sources. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.